Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. Good morning. This is the Hebrews class, and we are on chapter 13, which is the last chapter of the book. So I anticipate that we will finish our study today on the book of Hebrews. Before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And as we study Hebrews 13, may you bless us in a special way. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 13. Now, we finished Hebrews chapter 12 last time, and Paul really kind of finishes some of his main points by the end of chapter 12. You get to chapter 12, and you have looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, running the race with patience set before us, talking about coming to Mount Zion, uh, the pathway to Mount Zion, and a number of other topics. And all of those things kind of tie together the concept of Jesus as our high priest, how he's also at the right hand of God, how he helps us to run this race with patience that leads us all the way to Mount Zion. And that's ultimately the call of the 144,000 who will stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And of course, you can see that we are coming to Mount Zion in verse 22 of chapter 12. So Paul kind of ties everything together and then chapter 13 is just sort of parting instruction to the Hebrews. Now, just as a reminder of who he's writing to in the immediate context, this was written in 66 AD, four years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so it was important for the Jewish Christians, the Hebrew Christians, to understand that the Jewish ceremonial law was no longer important because if they hung on to that they would hang on to the temple and when Jerusalem was surrounded they'd want to stay in the city instead of getting out as Jesus had told them to do so. So this is God's last instruction to the Jewish Hebrew Christians, the Hebrew Christians just before the destruction of Jerusalem. But there's also language in here that applies to us today as well. So we'll start in chapter 13 verse 1 where it says, let brotherly love continue. So <clears throat> one of the things that we think about when we think of God's people who are running the race with patience set before us and how we are headed to Mount Zion. In chapter 12, we see the concept of following peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord in verse 14 of chapter 12. We also see um, how roots of bitterness can spring up among us in verse 15 of chapter 12. So just a reminder, hey, let brotherly love continue. We don't want to be defiled by having bitterness between our brothers and sisters. So just a, a, a little point there. And then he goes on, verse 2, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And <clears throat> verse 3 continues this idea, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Now, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, look, entertain strangers. You don't know who these people are. Maybe they're angels, but even if they're not, you should take care of these people and also them who are suffering adversity. Now, if this sounds in any way familiar to the words of Christ, 
it should, because in Matthew chapter 25, if you turn to Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 and 36, Jesus says, For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And so these are the people who, they didn't even realize that they were ministering to the Lord. But in the judgment, on the great day of judgment, when the two camps, the sheep and the goats, stand before the Lord, Jesus will say to the sheep, hey, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was a stranger, you took me in. And Paul's just reminding us, hey, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. And sometimes you're actually entertaining angels. And we can think of the story of Abraham where he entertained angels. And actually he even entertained God himself. So there's also, you know, another point within this concept, and that is the benevolent work, as Ellen White initially called it, or medical missionary work. You don't have to be a doctor with several letters past your name to do medical missionary work and to reach out to those in need. People that are hungry, you don't have to be a doctor to figure out that food will help them. You know what I mean? And the Lord has given us instruction to help those people out. And Paul, as he gives parting instruction to the Hebrews, says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Remember them that are in adversity. And then he goes on. It's sort of a, a compilation of ideas that he's throwing together. Verse 4, he says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And this is pretty straightforward, but I, I will make a point. There are certain extremists, I guess I would say, that have said that, that people who are married should only have certain relations if they want to have children. And Paul says, look, the, the bed is honorable. So if you want to have a theological argument, I want, I'm not going to spend much time on that, but here's a Bible verse that clearly counters that point. And believe it or not, even in the last couple of years, a well-known minister got off on that idea and he's no longer in the ministry. So it, those ideas are out there. Um, but, and obviously the key point, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. There's the literal component to that. There's also the spiritual component about how um, modern-day Babylon makes all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and you have Babylon and the mother of harlots. And so there's the literal component, there's the spiritual component as well. And it's interesting. The 144,000 are described as virgins not defiled with women. That's clearly spiritual language. And so spiritual application, if you want to be part of the 144,000, don't be defiled with women. What's that talking about? Babylon, who is the mother of harlots. Don't be defiled by Babylon, the mother, and her harlot daughters. So continuing on, verse 5, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Verse 6, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I like those two verses. Now, notice what Paul is saying here. Look, <clears throat> don't be covetous. Be content with what you have. 
Now, if you are covetous, first of all, you're breaking the 10th commandment. 10th commandment, don't covet. And if you're coveting, you're not gonna be content with what you have. And if you're not content with what you have, that means you're not satisfied with God. And if you're not satisfied with God, you can't really say the Lord is my helper. And then you can't really say, well, I'm not gonna fear what man does to me because you don't really think that God is helping you in the best way that he could be. You see what Paul's saying here? And, and, then, and then we can't really boldly say, hey, the Lord is my helper. But if we don't covet, if we're thankful for what we have, and by the way, the word conversation in the original language talks about the mind, uh, the state of mind as it relates to money. That's actually the, the idea that's trying to be conveyed here. But, but nevertheless, if we are content with what God has given us, if we're poor in the things of this earth, or if we do have means, but we're not covetous, then we can have confidence in God. We can know that he really never will leave or forsake us. And we really can say with boldness that he is our helper and we won't fear what man will do to us. Now, what you notice in that concept is if we do not fear what man will do to us, that means that in a, in a healthy way, we have the fear of God. We don't fear man, we fear God. We aren't, we aren't mindful of what man thinks of us. We only care about what God thinks of us and how he provides for us. So covetousness as it relates to the 10th commandment is, a, is an important point. So, so far we've seen the idea of hospitality and medical missionary work, the idea of the honorableness of, or the honor of marriage, um, and the idea of not coveting and having confidence that God takes care of us, that he provides for us. And then continuing on verse seven, remember them which have the rule over you, or the marginal reading in the King James says, remember them which are the guides over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now, what Paul is saying here is like, look, the spiritual leaders who have led you into this faith, follow them, considering the end of their conversation. Now, you may be saying, wow, so is, is Paul saying that we should follow men instead of God? Well, notice what the very next verse says. This helps us to understand what Paul is saying. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here's the point. <clears throat> the guides who have taught you have done so by following Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because they have followed him, they have followed the truth that has always been the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And so if, they, if their conversation speaks of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, you can have confidence to follow what they are teaching you. That's what, Paul, that's what Paul is saying. And, you know, we like to quote Hebrews 13, verse 8, and it's a, it's a great verse that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And the context in Hebrews 13 is, is that if people are teaching Jesus Christ and the principles of Jesus Christ that have never changed, you can have confidence in what they're teaching you. And notice the very next thing in verse 9. He says, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. So here's the point. Jesus Christ is always the same. So if someone starts teaching you a new doctrine that contradicts old truths, don't follow it. Don't be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He doesn't contradict himself. So if your Bible teacher is teaching you something that clearly goes against the Word of God, that's being carried about with divers and strange doctrines. But if your Bible teacher is teaching you to trust in the Word of God, every word, you can have confidence that you can follow them. But ultimately, we follow Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <clears throat> so, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have, have been occupied therein. Now, Paul is starting to get into this concept of like, look, the meats that he's talking about, he already talked about in Hebrews chapter 10, where he talks about um, meats and drinks, um, or actually it's Hebrews chapter 9, sorry. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. And that pertains to the earthly sanctuary service where you had meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal, ordin cardinal ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. The time of Reformation is when Jesus died on the cross. And there was a change from the ceremonial system to the system that Christ established with his death on the cross. And so what Paul is saying here is, okay, it's good to be established with grace, the grace that God has provided for us through the death of Jesus' his Son. And by the way, look at your Jewish forefathers. The meat offerings that they um, performed didn't profit them because they rejected Christ. That which was supposed to point them to Christ, ultimately they ended up rejecting him instead of accepting him. And then verse 10, he says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tab tabernacle. So now he's talking about the Jewish ceremonial system. He's like, in, in our system, only those who are of us have the right to worship. And verse 11, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Now, this is a, a little bit of a theological point, so let me explain what Paul is trying to say here. <clears throat> Certain offerings, the flesh of the animals would be eaten by the priest in the sanctuary. But the sin offering specifically the sin offering, when it was offered in the outer courtyard, the flush was then taken outside of the sanctuary and burned outside the camp. And what that was symbolic of is that when Jesus came and died, he also died outside the city of Jerusalem. So here's the savior of the world. He should be the lamb of God. And according to type and anti-type, theoretically, he should have died in the temple 
but he was actually taken outside of the city of Jerusalem and crucified on the cross. And that's what Paul says in the next verse. He says, wherefore Jesus also, and Jesus, by the way, was the sin offering. He was the ultimate sin offering. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So you see the illustration Paul is making here? With the sin offering, the, the animals that were, were the sin offering would then be taken, after they were sacrificed, would then be taken outside of the sanctuary and their bodies would be burned. That was what you did with the sin offering. Jesus, who was the sin offering, also died without the camp. <clears throat> and there's a key point in verse 12 that says, Jesus sanctifies the people with his own blood. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but commonly you'll hear people or theologians say that we're justified by the blood of Christ, and that is true. And then we're sanctified by the washing of water through the Word. So the blood of Christ justifies us, and then He washes us or cleans us up with, with water. And when He was thrust in the side, blood and water came out, and the blood justifies us, and the water cleans us. But that's actually not a biblical teaching. That's just an idea that some theologians came up with. Because Hebrews 13, verse 12 says, not only does His blood justify us, it also sanctifies us. And if his blood justifies us and sanctifies us, how then can you separate justification and sanctification from salvation in the salvation process? Because Christ's blood is the salvation process. And if his blood justifies us and sanctifies us, that means justification and sanctification are part of salvation. You see that? So if someone tries to tell you that justification is the only part of salvation, you just show them Hebrews 13, 12 and say, hey, his blood sanctifies us as well, and his blood is part of salvation. So he justifies us and he sanctifies us with his blood. And what Paul is saying here to the Hebrews as well is, look, in our old system, only those who had the right bloodline they were Jews, could go into the temple. But once Jesus died outside the camp, you know, that old system, that's just not good enough. Jesus died outside the camp, and his salvation is for everyone. So let's, tr let's stop looking to the temple. Let's stop trying to be like just an exclusive group of Hebrews. We are Hebrew Christians. Salvation is for everyone. Jesus died outside of Jerusalem because he's dying for everyone, not just for the Jews, not just for the Hebrews. And he's like, you know, we had our meats and we had our altar and only we could go to that. That's not good enough. We have a belief system now that is for everyone, not just for us. And so the next thing... Paul says after Jesus suffered without the gate, then in verse 13 he says, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. Now what's Paul saying here? He's saying, look, <clears throat> salvation is not in Jerusalem. And as Jews, it might be a little bit hard to accept the fact that Jerusalem isn't really the city on the hill gleaming on the hill as the best place in the world, so to speak, anymore. God is calling us to bear reproach and to give up that tradition and go outside the camp just as Jesus suffered without the gate for us. And why would that be important? And I already mentioned it earlier, but when the Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem as Jesus said it would, nearly at this point 36 years or so, yeah, about 36 years earlier, 
<clears throat> the Jews, if they still were hanging on to Jerusalem and the temple, the temple, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is the place. And actually Jesus and Paul are saying, no, it's not the place. It's time to go outside the camp. They would want to stay. And they're like, well, I know Jesus said to get out of here. And I know the Roman army surrounding, but boy, this is where salvation is. It's where salvation has always been. And Paul is saying, no, let us go forth therefore unto him, unto Christ, without the camp bearing his reproach. And notice verse 14, for here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So Jerusalem is not the continuing city. We seek the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So this was important for the Hebrew people in 66 AD, shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's also important for us today as God's people. Now this is, this is an illustration, this is not a theological point per se, it's just an illustration. Um, so don't go around saying Norman said this is the theological point of what Paul is trying to say. It's just an illustration. But it's interesting that in the last days, there is a call to come out of another city and to seek a heavenly city. God calls his people to come out of Babylon and to go to the heavenly Jerusalem. And again, I'm not saying that that's the, the, the main theological point of what Paul is trying to say here, but it is interesting that people will say, well, it was good enough for my parents and, and they, they always worshiped on Sunday this or that or whatever, and they're gonna, I know I'll see them in heaven, so why can't I just keep doing it this way? And the point is, is that when God reveals to us his truth for this time, we need to act on it. And if the Jews had stayed stuck in Jerusalem, when the Roman army surrounded them, they would have been destroyed like all the other millions of Jews who died during that time. There was like, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, it was during Passover, I believe, and Jews from all over the world were in the city and the Roman army came in and millions of them died um, in that siege in 70 AD. And we want to be God's people. We want to follow his voice and of course, I'm not, what I'm saying is the modern day city would be Babylon and those who are in Babylon would need to come out. So we continue then, verse 15, by him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, continually that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So as we are on our way to heaven, no matter what trials we are going through, we should continually praise God. Verse 16, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And these are just straightforward Christian principles of giving praise to God continually. Verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. And again, it's just talking about submitting to the authority that's above you. Verse 18, pray for us for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, <clears throat> willing to live honestly, but I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the last few verses here, Paul's going to make a final pitch <clears throat> and we're going to look at these verses and then when we finish the chapter, I'm going to spend just a few minutes to review the overall <clears throat> theme of the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Verse 20, now the God of peace <clears throat> that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, er, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep 
through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now there's a lot in this passage in these two verses. <clears throat> Notice in verse 20 it says, The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now if you remember from the study of the book of Romans, for those of you who went through that in in our Roman study. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 4, <clears throat> speaking of Jesus being brought again from the dead, <clears throat> this is related to our belief in God. We, we see in Romans 4 the faith of Abraham, how righteousness is imputed to him because he fully be believed that what God promised he was able to perform. Verse 23 and 24 says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Verse 24, But for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now notice what we see here. <clears throat> righteousness was imputed to Abraham. And righteousness will be imputed to us if we believe on God who raised up Jesus from the dead, who was raised again for our justification. And when you go to Romans 6, Romans 6 talks about how we were buried with Christ by baptism into death. And then in verse 6, that... that <clears throat> or actually in verse 4, sorry, that even as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we should also walk in newness of life. So what's the significance of believing in Christ who was raised from the dead? It means that we believe that if God, who is all-powerful to raise Jesus from the dead, he is all-powerful to raise us up who we were dead to trespasses and sins, in trespasses and sins, and we're raised to walk in newness of life, and we are now dead to sin. So the belief of being imputed as righteous is believing that God will raise us up to walk in newness of life. And, and Paul is making a passing reference to this in Hebrews 13. The God of peace who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now notice what he does. Through the everlasting covenant make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Now, we've talked about the blood of Jesus earlier in this chapter. <clears throat> the blood of Jesus <clears throat> is used to justify us and to sanctify us, and it's the blood of the everlasting covenant. What is the everlasting covenant for? <clears throat> Verse 21 says, to make you perfect in every good work, to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus. And the first point I'll make is that any good work that we do is through Christ Jesus, not in and of ourselves. But his blood gives us power through Jesus Christ to do his will. Now, <clears throat> we've talked about what God's will is in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> Can you, do you remember in Hebrews chapter 10 what we described as being God's will? <clears throat> well, if you go back to Hebrews 10, verse 7, 
this is speaking of Jesus where he says in Hebrews 10 verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. This is being quoted from Psalms chapter 40 verse 8. And Jesus says, I come to do thy will, O God. And then he says, Yea, thy law is within my heart. <clears throat> and then, so then we see Jesus, he came to do God's will. What's God's will? God's law written in your heart. What does Jesus do as the mediator of the new covenant? In verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 10, he writes his law into our hearts. So Jesus delights to do God's will, which is God's law in his heart. And the new covenant, what he delighted to do, he writes in our hearts, which is his law. And then you get to the end of Hebrews chapter 10, where it says in verse 36, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, which is God's law written in your heart, which is the new covenant, ye might receive the promise. And then we have the great promise of Jesus coming the second time. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. So then in Hebrews 13, it's the blood of the everlasting covenant that makes us perfect in every good work to do his will, which is the new covenant, which is God's law written in our hearts. So look, we cannot keep the law of God in and of our own strength. That is clear. But with the blood of Christ which sanctifies us, we can keep his law through the power of Christ. It's not through our power. We don't have any power to do anything. But through the blood of Christ, we can be perfect to do his will, which is his law written in our hearts. <clears throat> and this is well-pleasing in, in the sight of Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then verses 22 through 25, And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Now, that's an interesting point. Paul is saying, you know, I just wrote you a few words about this message, and it's like, man, I wish Paul had written a, a volume to the Hebrews. I mean, imagine the treasure chest we would have of theology if he had even spent more time. But God ordained that this is what we should get, and we're thankful for what we have. But it'd be interesting if he had written even more. Verse 23, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints they of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And so thus concludes the book of Hebrews. So what did Paul accomplish in this book that he wrote to the Hebrew people of his day? But of course, it's applicable to us in our time. And in the remaining minutes, we're just going to review the high points of this book. And that is, what was Paul trying to set forth about Jesus Christ? Well, the main point that Paul was trying to set forth is that Jesus Christ is our high priest in heaven. And don't look to the high priest here on this earth anymore because they are, they are officiating over a system that ended when that veil was rent in two when Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus now is our high priest in heaven, and he's a better high priest. How do I know this? Because he is after the order of Melchizedek. And how is Melchizedek a better priest than the priest here on this earth? Well, because Abraham paid tithe 
to Melchizedek. And the priests here on this earth come from the line of Levi, and Levi would be the great-grandson of Abraham. And if Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, that means Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, and he's greater than Levi. And so therefore, if Christ is, a, a, is after the priesthood of Melchizedek, he's a greater priest than the priest here on this earth. So look to the greater priest. He's here now. The shadow is done away with. Christ is here. Look to Christ. How do we, how, what qualifies Christ to be a better high priest after the order of Melchizedek? Chapter 1, he's God. And the Father says, you are God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But not only is he fully God, he's also fully man. That's Hebrews chapter 2. So we see that for as much as the children's, children are partakers of flesh and blood in verse 14 of chapter 2, it says, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And then it says in verse 16 that he was made in all things like his brethren, that he did not take on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And because of that, he can make reconciliation for our sins because he knows what it's like to suffer being tempted. And then he continues that idea in Hebrews 4 where he says, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So that's our high priest. He was fully human. He knows what it likes. He knows what it is like to be tempted in every point the way we are tempted. And because of that, what does he do as our high priest? He makes reconciliation for us and he helps us when we are tempted so that we may overcome that temptation. And talk about a great high priest. The high priest here on this earth didn't offer that service. All they did was they would take your sacrifice for sin. They would sacrifice the animal and they would go once one day a year into the most holy place and then they'd come out again but they couldn't tell you hey <clears throat> I can give I can give you the power to have victory over that temptation in your life because they were a fallen human being just like we are but Jesus who came and lived a perfect life on this earth but he was tempted in exactly the same way we are he can give us the power to overcome those sins so now Paul is saying, look, Jesus is fully God, so he can be a divine being as our priest in heaven. And he is fully man. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And not only that, priests here in chapter 5, he says, you know, priests here on earth, this earth, they would bring the sacrifice of the animals. But Christ brought a better sacrifice. He offered himself. So he's better than the priest here on this earth because he offered himself. So he says, look, I know what it's like to suffer being tempted the way you suffer being tempted. And not only that, I offer myself. I'm the sacrifice. It's my blood. And then as you go on, you see that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But Christ's blood does take away sin. Amen. And it's his blood that takes away sin in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And some people say, well, Hebrews 9 proves that Jesus went straight into the most holy place when he ascended. Actually, it doesn't. Hebrews 9 verse 8 <clears throat> simply proves that Jesus went to the heavenly sanctuary. Verses 9, 8 through 10. 
what Paul and the key point, this is sort of a theological place or point where it says the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. The word for holiest of all in verse 8 is holy places. So that means the holy place and the most holy place in heaven. And that way could not yet be made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Now it would not make sense to say that the way into the holy place and the most holy place has not yet been made manifest while the holy place is still standing. Well, that doesn't make sense because you would be in the holy place and it hasn't been made manifest. But anyway, I won't spend much time on that. But the point is this. It's a comparison between the heavenly and the earthly sanctuary. Christ first went to the holy place, then the most holy place. And then as we continue on, what are the main points? We see in Hebrews 8 verse 1, Christ is our high priest set on the right hand of the throne of God. And in Hebrews 12, Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith seated on the right hand of the throne of God. So he is our high priest and his same function as high priest is to be the author and finisher of our faith. And as the high priest in Hebrews chapter 8, as the mediator of the new covenant, which is a better covenant because of his blood, he writes his law into our hearts and minds. And if he writes his law into our hearts and minds, that means that we will be a commandment-keeping people. And in Hebrews chapter 12, yes, he's the high priest. He's also the author and finisher of our faith. He helps us to run with patience the race set before us. And when we get to the end of the race, he's the author and the finisher. When we get to the end of the race, at the end of the race, we have our faith has been finished by Jesus, and we have the faith of Jesus. So we have patience and the faith of Jesus. And so Jesus' role at the right hand of God as the author and finisher of our faith is to help us have patience and the faith of Jesus. As our high priest, it's to write his law into our hearts and minds. So here you, you now have a group of people who keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints, and the faith of Jesus. So what's Jesus' role as our high priest seated on the right hand of God? It's to develop the 144,000. So ultimately... Jesus' role as our high priest, seated on the right hand of God, is he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He was fully God. He was fully man. That qualifies him to be seated on the right hand of God. And when he is seated on the right hand of God, through his power, through his grace, he will have a group of people who keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints, and the faith of Jesus. And when that happens, Jesus will no longer sit down. In Hebrews 10, we saw Jesus is seated till his enemies are made his footstool. The last enemy did be destroyed is death which is caused by sin when there's no more sin that occurs when Jesus blots out our sin with his blood in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and when that happens Jesus will no longer be seated at the right hand of God that will be the time in earth's history when Michael stands up and he says he that is unjust let him be unjust still he that is righteous let him be righteous still he that is holy let him be holy still and that's what Jesus is waiting for as our high priest so he is Ever since 1844, he has been in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary waiting for the time when he can, with his blood, blot out the sins of God's people. That's what Jesus is doing. And we as God's people have a special understanding of what the message of the book of Hebrews is and what the messages of Daniel and Revelation and all the rest of the Bible are. And it points to a great time when someday soon there will be a group of people who ran with patience the race set before them, who looked at Jesus, the author, and finished their faith. And when they got to the end of that race, they ended up at Mount Zion. Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 describes that time. 
And when they get to Mount Zion, we will see that description that we have long waited for when John said, and lo, I looked, and a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. And you see in Hebrews chapter 13 that Jesus is the shepherd of the, of the sheep. So he's the lamb, but he's the shepherd of the sheep. We are the sheep who follow him. And if we learn to follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth here on this earth, if we learn to run that race with patience set before us here on this earth, then we can have that day to look forward to when the 144,000, all the sheep, will stand with the great shepherd, the lamb, on Mount Zion. And in their mouth will be found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And that is because Jesus has, with his blood, blotted out their sins. He sanctified us. And so I pray that we will see that day very soon. So may we be faithful. And again, it's been a privilege to teach the book of Hebrews. May we keep studying the word. May we study the Bible. May we know what we believe. These are awesome and momentous times. And now more than ever, we need to know what we believe. Thank you, everyone.